Philippians chapter 4, I'm excited to study the scriptures with you. This is a familiar passage, an important one, perhaps one of the most comforting and yet challenging passages in all of the New Testament. And uh, for my wife and me, it's been one of our life passages. It's really been a lifeline for us. And, and living this out has meant everything to us in our life, and especially in the last year and a half. So we're going to be looking at verses 6 through 9. We'll read them in a few minutes, but let's pray first. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together this afternoon. We say together that Jesus, we're gathered around you. We're gathered for you and unto you. We say together that you are our greatest treasure. We say together that we want to be more like you. And so we invite your spirit to come and do a transformative work in us to come and deal with us, and specifically today, Spirit of God, that you would deal with our anxiety, our worries, our fears about the past, things we can't even change, the present, things we can't even deal with, and the future, things we don't even know. We just invite you, Spirit, to come and deal with the way that we're thinking and feeling about those things. And you cause us to think and feel rightly about those in light of who you are, Christ. And so work in our hearts. We ask together that you would please anoint me to preach to the church for your glory by grace and that today would be fruitful and enjoyable. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if I were to ask you what it would take for you to have a worry-free life, how would you respond to that? A lot of people immediately in their mind would go to finances. Maybe after that, you'd go to some career or some position that you want to attain. Perhaps next would be health for you and your family. Maybe relationships. You know, so your mind goes a lot of places. What does it take to have a worry-free life? Gosh, if I could just get financially secure or even better, financially fat. If I could just be financially fat, then I wouldn't worry. And if I just had this position or that career in place, I wouldn't have to worry about that. If, if I knew everyone that I loved would be healthy or if these relationships were secure and right. But you know what? Even as we talk about those things for just a moment, we realize that there are no guarantees about any of those. And, and even if you attain them, I mean, do the wealthy really worry less? <laughs> Apparently we have a wealthy person in the front row that knows all about that. There's a testimony. Thank you, Jesus. Another testimony comes from Jim Carrey, who said, yeah. He said, I wish everybody could get rich and be famous so that they could know it's not the answer to anything. So even when it comes to your health, I mean, can you really control your health? You could do your best best all your life and wake up one day, you've got cancer. You could do your best, wake up, your five-year-old baby girl has cancer. I mean, there's no guarantees about those things. Relationships, you know what? Relationships go south, people die, disasters happen. And we live in the most stable society in the world. We live in the most stable society in the history of the world with the most opportunities afforded us. And still, even just a moment of honest thought would lead us to see that it is perhaps impossible to create a worry-free life for ourselves. And so accordingly, we worry all the time. 
don't we? We find ourselves worrying all the time about all sorts of things. It almost seems like you can't worry. I mean, who here doesn't worry? We all worry. Every single one of us worries. And yet, the Bible says that to worry is to sin. That's tough, isn't it? We, you know, we easily, easily associate things like uh, stealing and, and coveting and murder and adultery and things like that with sin. But it's strange to think that when we are worrying, we're sinning. And, and yet, Scripture is explicit about that. We'll see it in our passage today. Jesus spoke about that on the Sermon on the Mount, commanded us not to worry. Worry is a sin. Here's why. Because at its core, what worry is, is dishonoring and discounting the sovereignty and goodness of God. At its core, to worry is to discount and dishonor the sovereignty and goodness of God. And so it's a sin. Kind of a big sin. If there is such delineation, you know, we, <laughs> we think there's gnarly sins and then there's the stuff we do all the time. But, but this, this, this is kind of a gnarly one, to dishonor, discount the goodness and the sovereignty of God. And so because it is a sin, God has designed certain consequences, tangible consequences into it. You know, um, God does this with all sorts of things. Like when you drink too much, um, you wake up, you have a hangover. You know what that is? It's your brain swelling and pressing against your skull. That's God's design saying, don't drink so much, you idiot. He designed in that consequence. Lots of stuff is like that. And worry is the same way. Extended periods of worry wreak havoc on our physical well-being. Anywhere from headaches to blood pressure. Chronic worriers are prone to heart conditions. And and as a general rule of thumb, are no fun to be around. So there's these consequences, tangible ones, that God has designed into that, that lets us know this, this is wrong. And then, of course, there's the intangibles, you know, what it does to us internally and spiritually, so on and so forth. And so because it is a sin, because it's kind of a biggie, and because we do it a lot, and it has consequences, we would expect Scripture to speak to it. We would expect Scripture to tell us how to deal with our worry and our anxiety, how to be both obedient and well in this area. And that's what our passage does. Now, I want you to remember that Paul is writing to us here. And, and, and Paul's writing with authority, not only because he's, you know, inspired by the Holy Spirit, but also because he's one of those guys who's been there. You know what I mean? When someone's like been there and they, and they talk about something, you listen to them. Paul's been there. You know, he's writing from a real place of pain. He's, he's lost his freedom. He's experienced a lot of difficulties, a lot of suffering, a lot of trials. And yet the tone and the tenor of the book of Philippians is one of joy. This abiding joy in Christ. And so when Paul talks about these things, when Paul talks about how to deal with worry and anxiety, we, we want to listen. He's someone who's been there. Now, when the book of Philippians talks about joy, when we talk about joy in a Christian context, we we want to realize it's not merely a feeling, both joy and peace that we're talking about today. We're not talking about merely feelings. Rather, we're talking about the deep down confidence that God is in control of everything for the Christian's good and for his glory. And therefore, all is well no matter what the circumstance You see, the Christian's peace and joy is not merely a feeling. It's a deep down confidence that God's in control of everything. 
and working it for our good and for his glory. Therefore, all is well, no matter what the circumstance. And yet circumstances are the thing that seems to threaten our joy and our peace the most. The things that happen to us seem to shape mostly how we feel and whether or not we have peace and joy. What we need to realize is that it is in tough circumstances where we find out what our faith really means. You see, it's one thing to believe the truths of Christianity, but it is another thing to believe them in a way that causes you to triumph and retain peace and joy when everything seems to be against you. And so when everything seems to be going wrong, and and it will for all of us from time to time, nobody can avoid that, what is your faith worth at that point? When everything seems to be against you and going wrong, what is your faith worth? In other words, does it differentiate you from people who don't follow Jesus? Because everyone's got drama. Everyone's got problems and heartache. But you, Christian, what is your faith worth when everything seems to be going wrong? Do you feel and think differently than those who don't follow Jesus? And it's really here where perhaps our most crucial area of witness lies as we endeavor to live life on mission. This is an incredibly important area of witness. You see, most anybody can muster a certain degree of good morals, Most anybody could go about and do good deeds or abstain from certain behaviors. That's not that big of a deal. But you cannot manufacture, force, or fake joy and peace that abide when everything's going wrong. You could put on a thin veneer and a smiley face, but you cannot fake true, deep joy and peace in difficult circumstances. So so it's in this area where we get to demonstrate the worth of Christ to the world. That we locate our joy and our peace in an entirely different person and place. And it's important that we're faithful to doing that as we live lives on mission because we've got to realize the people that we're trying to communicate Christ to are generally realists and pragmatists. Okay, that's our culture. They're realists and they're, they're pragmatists. In other words, they want to see how that works. They hear what you're saying. They hear what you believe to be true, but they would say, you know, there's a lot of versions of truth, right? It's a pluralistic culture. They would say lots of different people claim a lot of different truths. Show me how that works. Show me what that does when life hurts. Pragmatists and realists. And so we have this incredible opportunity to show them peace and joy in the midst of pain. So from the perspective of our own peace and joy in the Lord and the faithfulness of our mission in the world, this is an incredibly important passage. Starts in verse six. Reading from the New American Standard today. It says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. 
And finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. And the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace shall be with you. So it starts out by saying, be anxious for nothing. That word anxious really denotes what we're talking about when we say worry. It means nervous care, brooding over something, to over-meditate on something. You know what that's like? When you're just thinking about it over and over again, you just, all night long, you can't sleep, and during the day, and you're distracted, and you're thinking those thoughts. It's that thing of worry. You can't escape that thing that's causing you difficulty. And here it says, be anxious for nothing. Don't worry about anything. And it can't escape our notice that that's a command. That's a command here in the Bible. Just like that shall not kill, that shall not steal. This is a command. Be anxious for nothing. It's not a nice little suggestion or a little option. This is a command. Be anxious for nothing. Don't worry about anything. But it's not just a standalone command. It's got some real teeth to it. It's followed by this. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. I left out the Thanksgiving part. We'll get to it in a moment. So according to this verse, the way to not worry about anything is to pray about everything. Overly simplistic, but so dang true. The way not to worry about anything is to pray about everything. It's been said that anxiety and prayer are as opposed to each other as fire and water. Biblically speaking, we could say that the opposite of worry is prayer. The opposite of worry is prayer. You take that verb worry, you take the prayer, opposite. So this, this passage is beckoning us who are troubled, who have difficulty, struggling with things about the past we can't change, things about the future that we are uncertain about, things of the present we can't deal with. It's beckoning us to, to prayer, to having a life of prayer, to, to praying more. You see, we worry a lot. We've already kind of confessed that before each other. But do we pray a lot? Do we pray in in a way that is commensurate with proportional to how much we worry? Think about what's troubling you lately. What what have you been worrying about? What's on your mind? What's bugging you? What, What keeps you up at night? Think about that. Get that in your mind. Now I need to ask you, have you actually talked to the Lord about those things? Not a passing, just like, oh, Lord, by the way, blah, blah, blah. And then, but, but in a way that is proportional to how much time you spent worrying about it. Have you brought it before the Lord? In a way that enables you to roll the burden of it on Jesus. That's the idea. First Peter 5, 7, cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. The idea there is rolling the burden off of ourselves and onto Jesus. It's not necessarily an easy thing to do, but that's what we're being beckoned to do. Do we pray in any degree proportionately to how much we worry? You see, it's really a time and commitment issue. It's, it's, we just haven't chose to do it. This is beckoning us. Listen, come on, you're worried about so many things. So start, to, start to pray about those things. Now, that could be hard to kind of get to and, and, and know how to start to cast those burdens on the Lord could 
It's not necessarily automatic or that easy. So, so the passage helps us here. When it tells us to do that with thanksgiving, there's the key, okay? There's a certain way to, where to do this, with thanksgiving. Now, the assumption of this passage is that the Christian is gonna cry out to God when he or she is in a time of need or facing problems or fears, not with doubting, questioning, or blaming, but with thanksgiving. Okay, the assumption of Scripture here is that the Christian is going to cry out to God in times of difficulty, not with doubting, questioning, or blaming, but with praising and thanking. Now, where we often go is doubting, questioning, and blaming, right? The, the worst happens. The worst happens, and we often, God, why? God, how could you? God, where are you? God, why don't you? See, we're really quick to go to questioning, blaming, and doubting. But, but we're being called here to go to thanksgiving. That's a radical change. And there is both a theology and a psychology to this. Psychology, unload that term. Don't, you know, just simplify it. Save your emails for yourself. There's both a theology and a psychology here. The, the theology is represented well in Psalm 100, my son's favorite psalm. Verse 4 says, Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name. Okay, so the, the theology of this is that the right way for the Christian to approach God in any circumstance is with thanksgiving. In every circumstance, the right way for the created to approach the creator is with thanksgiving. Enter his gates with thanksgiving. That's where you start. Enter his gates with thanksgiving. So we're on solid scriptural and theological ground to say that we must approach God with an attitude of gratitude no matter what's happening. Okay, and then there's a certain psychology to it. And here's what I'm trying to say. When we do this, when we start to thank God, when, when we have a lot of stuff to be anxious and worried about, instead we start to thank God, we're getting ourselves mentally thinking about the right things. Instead of thinking about what threatens you, think about what blesses you. Now, what I want to suggest to us is that there's a lot to be thankful for. That we have a lot of blessings to count. Listen, if you are an American, you are loaded down with blessings. No matter how difficult your life is right now, if you can't see that, you need to go on a trip. You, you need to go somewhere where there is abject poverty. You, you need to go somewhere as an American Christian to a place like Iran where they're arresting and torturing Christians today. Man, if you can't see as an American that you have a lot to be thankful for, you, you are blind, man. You are radically blinded. And beyond that, you, you know, we have Jesus. I mean, if you can't think of anything to be thankful for, think about Jesus and salvation. I mean, you're not going to hell, dude. Everything's horrible, but thank you, God, that I'm not going to hell because of what Christ did for me. And then there are all the promises of God, which are multitudinous from Genesis to Revelation. If you cannot think about some promises of God to be thankful for and stand on, you have not read your Bible enough. Man, there's plenty to give thanks for 
in hard times. I mean, we could thank the Lord that he's not going to give us more than we could bear, yeah. right? 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation, it could also be translated trial. No temptation or trial has overcome you except for that which is common to man. Okay, we all got the same drama. But God is faithful, who will not let you be tempted or tried beyond that which you're able to bear. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you may endure it. We can rejoice about that even in difficult times. Thank you, God, that you will not give me more than I could bear with you, with your spirit and your heavenly resources functioning in my life. We could thank God that even the worst things, he's working for good. And to form us into the image of Christ, Romans 8, 28 and 29. We know that God causes all things to work together to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. You can thank God for that. Even the worst things he's working for good. We can thank God that when we're suffering, we can expect God himself to come to us and strengthen us. 1 Peter 5.10, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself, himself, perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. We can thank God that even when we're going through difficult things, he's doing a deep work in us. Romans 5.1-5 in the New Living Translation, Therefore, Since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand. And we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. We can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials for we know that they help us develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character. And character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment for we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. You see, all of these truths are ample reason for us to begin to thank and praise God even when things are going wrong. That, that's theologically right. That's psychologically right. That's what this passage is beckoning us to do, to begin to thank God even when things are going wrong. When we do that, when we start to think about the right things through thanking God, we're fostering faith rather than cultivating fear. When we worry and, and when we're just anxious, you know, we're cultivating fear, insecurity and difficulty, but But when we thank and praise the Lord for who he is and what he's done and his promises and what he will do, it it cultivates faith. And the righteous shall walk by faith. Man, I got to tell you that this passage was survival for my wife and me this year. When we found out that our baby girl had cancer, this was survival. I mean, this was a lifeline We lived according to this passage. All the places our mind could have gone, especially when she was diagnosed a second time and they gave her 30 to 50% chance of living. Where a dad's mind goes with that, where a mom's mind goes. I mean, this, this is how we lived and survived. God did such a 
work of grace in my heart when she was first diagnosed with cancer that and this is one of the first passages come to mind and, and by his spirit every time I open my mouth whether it was publicly or in a conversation or, or, or in my own heart talking to God I just praise and thanksgiving came forth it was the worst moment of my existence I found myself thanking God and you know what that did that saved my life I talked to a girl last service who came up to me during worship and said, man, that, that passage that you spoke about today saved my life two weeks ago. She said, there, there's so much hurt and pain and there's been so much hurt and pain in my life for so long. I've been crying out to God to help me and, and I finally heard him say, I want you to start to thank me. She said, she said when I started to do that, I, I was free. I was free like I haven't been free in years. She said, that, life, that passage saved my life. Man, this, this is real stuff. And, and it comes with one of the most comforting promises in all of the New Testament. Now, I want to prepare you. The promise is not cry out to God and he's going to make all your problems go away. That's what we wish it was, but that's not what it is. <laughs> that was so dorky. <laughs> Just spazzed out really hard. We wish it was that, but that's not what it is, okay? God's not saying here, I'm going to take away all your problems and and that's how you're going to have peace. In fact, the passage seems to insinuate that the problems are going to continue and there's going to be plenty to be anxious about. Okay, the promise is in verse seven. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's the promise. When you're anxious about something, When you take it to the Lord in prayer with thanksgiving, the associated promise of God is that the peace of God, his peace, the peace that God has as being the king of the universe. It's beyond all comprehension. We'll guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. See, it seems to insinuate that the drama is going to continue, but we're going to be guarded in the midst of it. That phrase, will guard, in the Greek is a... a phrase that would be used to denote a soldier who's been stationed to watch over something. God himself, like a soldier, stationed to watch over your heart and mind in the most painful moments of your life. That's the promise. You start to thank and praise God when it hurts and God himself will be stationed like a faithful soldier to guard your heart. How you feel about that? Your mind, what you're thinking about that. And here's where we take another step toward developing a robust theology of suffering. See, what we understand in theology of suffering is that God's going to let us suffer. Sometimes he delivers us, but a lot of times God will let us suffer. But here's what's important to understand in theology of suffering. He will never let us suffer alone. And he will never let us suffer without supernatural resources. He may let us suffer, but not without his presence guarding how we feel and think and not without his resources getting us through that time. It says, in the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension. It surpasses all comprehension. That means that it's not of human origin. This peace that is promised to us here is supernatural. It's a peace of God. It's from God. It's beyond comprehension. That that means it's not rational. We want it to be rational. We want to be like, okay, I've got this problem. Here's the solution. I have peace. 
But this is not like that. This is like, I have that problem. It's getting worse. There's no end in sight, but I have peace. It like doesn't even make sense. It's, it's beyond comprehension. Let me say this to you. If your Christianity always makes sense, it, it ain't Christianity. This is beyond comprehension. This is having peace and joy when we shouldn't have it. It is supernatural. And notice that it's of Christ Jesus. We'll guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's the operative phrase, in Christ Jesus. Peace is only possible in Christ. No governmental authorities, no situational ease could ever bring true peace. That's part of the message that we take into the world. And everybody wants that. Peace. But we can only be found in Christ. Listen to what Jesus says in John 14, 27. Maybe you've never read it in the New Living Translation. It's so good. He says, I'm leaving you with a gift, peace of mind and heart. And the peace I give isn't fragile like the peace the world gives. So don't be troubled or afraid. How good is that? Peace of mind and heart. That's what every human being, rich, poor, in times of trouble or ease is looking for, is peace of mind and heart. And Jesus says, that's what I'm giving you as a gift. It's not like the world. It's not fragile. It's not shaken. Those who trust in the Lord are as Mount Zion. They shall not be moved. Isaiah 26, 3. The steadfast of mine you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. In Psalm 13, the psalmist in a time of difficulty and travail wrote, but I've trusted in your loving kindness. So my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. He was going to rejoice in who God is and what God did, even though it hurt in his life at that moment. Psalm 91 is a great promise. Whoever dwells, hear that word dwells, okay? Time investment, relational time investment. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. So there's this promise that he'll guard our hearts and our minds supernaturally with peace that doesn't even make sense. And the reason that he does that in our heart and our mind, the the heart and the mind speak of the inner person. Okay, and interestingly enough, I think that the heart and the mind are responsible for anxiety. You see, we think that anxiety and worry stem from outside pressures, but, but they actually come from ourself, from our heart and our mind. They actually come from what we do or do not believe about God. That's why it's a sin issue. Worry and anxiety come from ourselves according to what we do or do not believe about God. Most people think that outside pressures cause worry. But what I want to say is that our life circumstances only reveal the problems of our heart and our thinking. They don't make them. That's why worry is characterized as a sin because it really denotes a deficient, dishonoring view of God, his sovereignty and his goodness. You see, when it comes to our well-being and our relationship with God, what we think is everything. What we think about God and what we think about, period. What we think 
is everything. That's why after it lists what is true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, of good repute, excellent, worthy of praise in verse 8, it says, let your mind dwell on these things. Let your mind dwell on these things. You see, spiritual stability is a result of how the Christian thinks. Spiritual stability is to a large part a function of how the Christian thinks. Let your mind dwell on these things. That phrase dwell on is a Greek verb, legizomai. Okay, it doesn't mean to just kind of let it pass through your mind. It means to evaluate, consider, calculate, reckon, come to some conclusions about. Let your mind dwell on those things. And it's a command. We, we are commanded here for our mind to dwell on, for us to think about, draw conclusions from the right things. Because the Bible seems to say that people's lives are a product of their thoughts. Proverbs 23, 7. For as a man thinks, so he is. Matthew 7, Jesus said the same way. He said, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, Murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All of these things proceed from within and defile the man. So if we dwell on and think about holy things and right things, there's going to be a degree of holiness and rightness in our lives. If we think about and dwell on wrong things and garbage, then there's going to be a degree of wrongness and garbage in our lives. And the only way to get rid of the trash that's in here, the battlefield of the mind, the only only way to get rid of the trash is to replace it with new stuff. That's what Romans 12, 1 and 2 is talking about. Here it is in the New Living. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Verse two is important. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. How we think and what we think about as believers is everything. Let God transform you, make you new and different by changing the way that we think. This is why, my brothers and sisters whom I love, it is imperative and non-negotiable that you read your Bibles. If you're going to do anything in your life, read your Bible. If you're going to do anything this year, commit yourself to careful, prayerful, meditative reading of Scripture. Because it's in that that God replaces the garbage with the things that are right. That he changes the way that we think about ourselves, sin, the world, and God, and so changes the way that we are. 
And so this list of things that we have there in Scripture, right? Think on what is true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, of good repute, which means admirable, of excellence, worthy of praise. It's, they kind of seem ethereal. It's kind of hard to get at them when you're just, okay, I'm going to think about those things. What's lovely? Surfing. I don't know what to think about. And so in pondering that this week, I, I thought about their opposites. Okay, so we're, we're supposed to think about what is true. What's the opposite of that? Lies. The opposite of honorable would be shameful. The opposite of what's right would be what's wrong. Of what's pure would be what's dirty and unpure or impure. The opposite of lovely would be what's ugly. The opposite of what's of good repute or admirable would be what's deplorable. Of excellence would be what's shoddy, worthy of praise would be what's low or base. And when I recognize and wrote down the opposites, I realize how often that's the stuff of my thought life. How often my thoughts are about lies and things that are shameful and wrong and dirty and impure and ugly and deplorable and shoddy and base. I said, Lord, you you need to change the way that I think. How do do I get at this? And then I realized that, that that list, that list is best fulfilled by Jesus. But what do do I think? I think about Jesus. Jesus is true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, and worthy of praise. So what scripture is beckoning me to do is to think more about Jesus, to dwell on Jesus, to calculate life according to Jesus, to come to conclusions according to Christ and who he is and what he's done and what he's yet to do. Let your mind dwell on Jesus. That sounds good to me. And so Isaiah 26.3, again, this time in the New Living Translation, you will keep in perfect peace all who trust in you, all whose thoughts are fixed on you. That's, that, that's what we're supposed to do. Fix our thoughts. Think about Jesus. You see, we, we've mistaken the challenge of life. We thought that the challenge of life was to create an existence in which we're free from trouble and unpleasant circumstances. That's an illusion. That's an impossibility. The real challenge before us is to trust in the goodness and the sovereignty of God in every circumstance and to give thanks. That's real. That's possible. And when we do that, we honor God and we then experience tangibly the blessings of his peace and his joy, even when life hurts. Amen? Lord, thank you for so beautiful a passage, so kind a promise of you. Lord, we just confess that it's not always easy for us to get at that, so we ask the Holy Spirit you'd come and help us. For those who are weary and weighed down, Spirit, come and and hold up to our hearts, Christ. His finished work on the cross, his current ruling and reigning from the throne. Encourage us with that. Draw forth from our hearts thanks and praise. Free us, Lord, from dwelling on all that other stuff and cause our minds to dwell richly on who Christ is and the word of Christ to dwell richly in us. Do that work in us. Spirit, we we need your help. 
If you need help with those things or anything else, we'll have pastors, elders, prayer team up here. Carpets and communion are here. But Christ is here. Let's connect deeply with him now.